had proven my case to the satisfaction of the public. And the sparrow had proven his case, which was that he'd come to stay. I could whip all my featherless foes, but the sparrows proved too much for me. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony Crosdale and Matthew Halley. It's been too long, Matt. We miss you so much. It's good to be back. Me podcast, a soup podcast. Indeed. Cheers. All right. Sad. I don't see Matt as much anymore because they're no longer roommates. <laughs> <clears throat> I moved to the other side of the river. You did indeed. Are we done a podcast with you since you moved back to the Wick House? No. Should we talk about that? Because that would be great. I think. Let's talk about the Wick House. Sure. Is that how you... So I... Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Can we talk about where you live, which is the Wick House? I wasn't going to let you get away with that. (laughs) Much, much. So, yeah. What's the Wick House? So, my house was built in 1690. (laughs) And when Germantown Avenue was just a Native American foot trail, um, it was... One of the first uh, waves of settlers with Pastorius and the settlers of Germantown. And it was. Where are they from? <clears throat> they're from Germany. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, Lower Rhineland, I yeah. think, at what the time. What is now one country, but was then principalities and stuff like that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And the this house was the. It was first settled by Hans Milan, who was a Quaker. Uh, who a Quaker uh, from Lower Rhineland who immigrated? The and guy's his, name was Hans Milan. Sounds like character in Zoolander. M I L A N. And then his daughter Margaret Milan married this strapping young uh, immigrant named Dirk Johnson. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really his name. Uh, and his was that the guy's name in Boogie Nights? <laughs> Dirk something, yeah. Dirk Diggler. So then Dirk and Dirk and his wife Kath or Margaret rather, they uh so the Johnsons then uh descended the Johnson houses descended from them, the Johnson Street in Germantown. Okay. Um the so and then their daughter then married Casper Wistar, the glass blower in, from first uh glass works in the colonies in Salem County, uh New Jersey. And and he was also a button maker. He had a button factory on Market Street on this side of the river. And uh, he was a Wistar. His brother, John Wister, um, you know, they were brothers, but their names were spelled differently. One with A, one with E, based on some uh, immigration paperwork snafu. And, but then it stuck, and it stick, stuck with the yeah. descendants later. So the Wistar Institute at, at Penn is... Uh, from the same family, and with the genus Wisteria, which was described oh. by Thomas. And just so everyone Thomas knows, what is, what's Wisteria? It's a it's a it's a vine that has these beautiful purple flowers and very perfumey kind of smell. It's leguminous, right? It's a it has like bean pods, right? I believe yeah. so. Um, and there's a native, at least there's probably more than, but there's a popular native variety that's planted. And then there's a popular exotic variety that is planted that tends to go feral and invasive, and so um, it can really take over. A uh, long story short, the Wick House uh, was 
captured by the British during the revolution. It was used as a field hospital. It's been through all of American history from 1690 to the present day. A single family lived in the house for nine generations until 1973. Damn. And then the house was put into a, into a trust uh, and the collections, artifacts, and, and you know, um, many thousands of documents were transferred to the American Philosophical Society's library. Okay. Um, and so this is actually, you know, it's relevant to what we're talking about today because this house was, was here in Philadelphia many, uh, you know, 150 years before the introduction of the House Sparrow. Aha! Way to, way to bring it back. Yeah, All 150 right. years of American history happened at this house before the House And this is what I've been noticing. I've been, for other projects, been doing some research into early naturalist observations in Philadelphia. Um, and I keep thinking, this was 100 years before the House Sparrow. This was like 150 years before the House Sparrow. Um, so, Even longer before, before the European Starling, too. So so we should change, like, from, you know, B.C. and... BCE and all that to BH. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not House Sparrow has been introduced to America. That's good. I went to Bexley High School, so that's what I triggered. But um, so that's uh, quickly. We'll do the intro stuff because we're we're the three of us are excited to get into this conversation. So um, uh, if you love the podcast, please rate us highly on your podcast listening apps of choice. Uh, please leave comments. Please tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. Find us on Facebook. Email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think and if you have any other ideas that are as cool as the introduction of the house sparrow as a topic. Mm. Um, By the way, if you want to visit the Wake House, it's open starting in April, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for several hours a day. Wick.org. W-Y-C-K. And we've talked about Germantown like it's as far off place. Today, Germantown is a neighborhood that's maybe 25 minutes outside of Center City. Yeah, okay. You can take a bus there. It's a piece of cake. I am, will be, even though it's so close, I'll, any day now, probably Friday, I will be sending something by mail to the Wick House. All right. I think I know what this might be. And Billy will be getting one as well. Will it be tied to the leg of a homing pigeon? (laughs) I'll be sending some (laughs) save the dates. Tony's getting hitched. Yes, indeed. All right. We'll keep we'll keep following that story. We're, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> do a podcast at the at the uh, um we can do a podcast at the wedding. Yeah, you could sure. eBird the wedding too. I'm sure Angie will love that. Yes, you, Angie wants me to set up <laughs> an eBird account for her, so I got to do that. Oh really? Yeah, she got real excited because she got three life birds yeah. at, at Heinz. Um, oh yeah, what she yeah. see? Field sparrow, uh, tundra swan, and redshoulder hawk. And the redshoulder hawk was was of Adult, so yeah. people who aren't from this region, it's probably our prettiest hawk. Wait, which one? Red shouldered. That's a very I mean, pretty. Hawk. I mean, red tailed hawk is like super majestic, mm-hmm. but red shouldered. Um, red tail. Red tail. Red shoulder has this black and white banded tail, and it's almost like checkerboard back with like red, you know, um, stripes on its chest, and it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous bird. And uh, it was carrying a garter snake. Ooh. Uh, yeah. This is a tough time of year for me that way, because. It's the time of year when you see lots of hawks flying around with garter snakes. Yeah. Because <laughs> the garter snakes are some of the earliest... The garter snakes are some of the earliest snakes to emerge um, from hibernation. They come out, they start breeding in these breeding balls where you have one big female surrounded by a whole bunch of males. And they're not thinking about anything but sex. Um, 
and they might be a little chilly too, so they're not, they don't have all their wits with them. And so there's not much vegetation on top of that, and so it's like easy pickings for the hawks. And so you always, I'll always be seeing these, these hawks yeah. flying over the river or something with a garter snake, and I'm like, I guess that's the circle life, man. But this, this it evening, hurts me a little bit. This evening, right before I came to record the podcast, I was at John Hines National mm. Wildlife Refuge, and I saw a Cooper's hawk with abandoned leg. A Cooper's hawk with a metal band on its left leg. That's awesome. Um, you know, I was two. I was about uh, five meters from the bird, so I had a mm. nice close look at it through the binoculars. You, you know, I couldn't read the serial number on the band or anything like that, but I could see that it was a banded bird. Another, another gorgeous bird. Yeah. You know how it is. I mean, she went to school for environmental policy. Like she worked environmental policy. You know, I mean, she's a maritime lawyer now. Like, I think a lot of people who are into nature and have that kind of a mind all it takes is someone to start putting names on things exactly you know and it really really catches hold you know plus also for me it's like makes me like you know chill me out a little bit where I don't have to just go out and like try to see a bunch of stuff I can just like appreciate a nice hike and a nice scenery too it's like a good give and take you know sure or as she's seeing a, a bird that's really common to you she sees it for the first time. Yeah. And you get to see it with fresh eyes through yeah. her. It's, that's one of the joys of bringing young, new birders out into yes, the field. Yes, those are my favorite things. We're yeah. good, you, we all get excited about a great catbird and a northern cardinal and the birds that we see all the time. Or the house sparrow. Because yeah. honestly, house sparrow is an is this introduced invasive species. But to a person who's never watched birds before, suddenly they realize that the house sparrow is a thing. And that they can identify it in the field. That's a valuable experience for for anyone. You're right, and I think we're gonna we're gonna get into that this idea of how should we perceive house sparrows in a minute. Um, I'm gonna say one quick thing, which is that the reason we're posting this now is that March 20th is World Sparrow Day. It's the holiday founded by naturalists, conservationists in India where, like many parts of the house sparrow range, the house sparrow is in decline. Actually, the house sparrow is in decline pretty much everywhere. In its introduced range as well as its natural range, no one's quite sure, but if you listen to our original World Sparrow Day episode, you'll hear about it from the Indian perspective as well as from an American researcher um, who points out that we should be concerned when we have an unexplained decline in any significant species. Um, and so that's a great episode to listen to. Uh, happy World Sparrow Day. Um, and I want to put a little tag here that we're also going to talk a little bit about bird window collisions or bird strike mortality at the end of the episode. Um, so please stick around for that to hear a little bit about what you can do when you find a dead bird. Um, and did y'all stick around because there may be some music in this episode? Original music. Indeed. Mm. About sparrows. Yes. I liked what you said, Billy, about significant species. And what that means, uh, you know, every species that plays a part in the ecosystem is a significant species. And when the house sparrow was first introduced, one of the main arguments uh, by Elliot Cowes and by Thomas Gentry here of Philadelphia... We're going to talk about these guys in a minute. Did Gentry have any land? Uh, He... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty good. He was actually he was a resident of Germantown. So uh, a lot of these stories come back to Germantown. They really do. Did he, um, did he migrate here? The point <laughs> on a boat. Did he land here? 
Is he a landed gentry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so he, so uh, you know, one of the main points that these guys uh, were making was that this is a this is an exotic species that did not evolve in this habitat in this place. The native songbirds and and the native. Uh, other flora and fauna have never experienced this thing before. It's a it's a an immigrant, and at this early date, we should exterminate it and get rid of it. Nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud, rather than because we're at the point now where we are now 167 years into the the presence of house sparrow in North America. <laughs> at some point, invasive an invasive. Uh, rather an alien species becomes uh, assimilated to the extent that it needs to be kind of assimilated in our minds into the quote-unquote native fauna. This is a really touchy topic to get into. It is, I know. Exotic invasive. Um, Because we're not going to get rid of house sparrows. We're not. And so I think... So we should learn to love them, like we can Do- learn to love Doctor them. Strangelove. But I, <laughs> I still have, I have thoughts about that. All right, so, so you are in fact in sort of leading off what I was going to ask by your need to justify house sparrows. Sure, implies that most people don't like them, don't want them around, or I'd say not. I should say most people, most naturalists, and I'm going to guess. I mean, I'm not even a birder, and I was sort of raised to look down on the lowly house sparrow that clogs up your dryer vents and, you know, nests around your house and wakes you up in the morning with all that damn cheaping and, and pecks the brains out of little baby bluebirds, you know. Yeah, I mean, I have similar views to them like I do feral cats, where it's like, I think people should have the option to manage them as they see fit for the land they have. Yeah. And they're probably not going to get rid of them, but if you have a property and you... Um, it's open country and you want bluebirds in your property and they're, you know, taking over the bluebird boxes all the time and get rid of them wherever you, however you need to. Yeah. You know, like, because they will kill the bluebirds sometimes. Yeah. And, um, Fair. and they're cute, you know, whatever, just like a cat's cute. Oh, they're engaging little yeah. birds. I mean, they're like, I like sharing myself to, to, to people who grew up in an urban setting and have never left the city limits of Philadelphia. And there's a decent percentage. Or of, suburbs, man. I grew up in the suburbs, and they've been with me well, my entire life. Sure. One way or another. Yeah. For, for individuals who don't have access to more open, wild spaces where there's a, a community of more native species. Although, honestly, come on. We've got a, quite a great bird community, even within the urban city limits. We do. That we is do. accessible to, to city dwellers. But the house sparrow is often the first species that we're going to encounter on the street if you leave your house and you walk down the stoop. If you and, open your window and listen. And you yeah. open your window. <laughs> um, but the truth is, before we start watching birds and pay attention to them, birds are always around us before I, I didn't become a bird watcher until I was an adult. And for a large part of my life, birds they they kind they existed, but they didn't exist to me at the same time. And I would walk out my door without paying any attention to the sparrows that were in the bush and when now as a as a avid bird watcher i walk out the door and immediately say oh there's the house sparrow yep it's the species that i'm confronted with every day yeah and there's a few species that i could say that for that's true they're still dinosaurs yeah they and, are dinosaurs <laughs> and dinosaurs are awesome they're still dinosaurs you can say about any bird but yeah 
as we can say about the chicken. So I think that, so those of you who somehow might not be familiar with house sparrows, or just never thought about it much before, think of what we're talking about against that default anti-house sparrow perspective. You know, we're, we're questioning that a little bit, we're playing with it, um, but you're thinking of today's tendency to not like house sparrows. We had an interview last, or first season, where the head of the American Birding Association referred to the unholy trio. Unholy trio! Of house sparrows, European starlings, and rock doves, a.k.a. pigeons. And they're, yeah, unholy trio doesn't really sound like something you like. The unholy trio! In support of the house sparrow, I want to cite an article by Rob Dunn. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> you done did it. Rob Dunn, who is a urban wildlife researcher out of North Carolina State University. He wrote an article in Smithsonian, um, and you can Google it really easily. It's called The Story of the Most Common Bird in the World. Why do we love what is rare and despise what is all around us? It's from March 2nd, 2012. And it's a fascinating article. It talks about sort of the ubiquity of house sparrows. But the part I got off on in this article was the history, prehistory of house sparrows and how they aren't just a European bird that we imported here. They are a bird that evolved with our culture. Um, you can say this to extend a lot of things, probably as you probe what species live around us. But house sparrows, house sparrows as we see them, the ones we see bopping around us, date back to the... 1850. Um, no, sir. No. They, the, the, including back into European time. Um, oh, so okay, they, okay. In North America, I think. Yeah, North America. But these guys date back around, I think it was 10,000 years or so. So I'm going to quote from the article um, that, you know, house sparrows had been found as fossil. There's a fossil record of house sparrows dating back about 100,000 years um, or, or a similar species. And then, quote, the fossil record is then quiet until 10,000 or 20,000 years ago when birds very similar to modern house sparrows began to appear in the fossil record in Israel, unquote. And so basically, these birds differed a little bit in some like, as he puts it, subtler features of their mandible um, so that they were, their, their bones or fossils would be recognizably different from the pre, I'll call the pre-agricultural house sparrows. And so what we have around us is a lineage of house sparrows that accompanied agriculture out of Israel or out of the Near East and then spread with it in sort of two directions into South Asia um, into Europe, we saw something apparently similar happening in China with a related species called the tree sparrow. The house sparrows we have around us are sort of part of our culture as like wheat or barley or, you know, settled agriculturally based existence, you know? Sure. And the house sparrow even reached the Hawaiian Islands by the 1870s. It reached Mauritius. It reached New Caledonia. The house sparrow was became quite widespread around the world. And I think that we, we should always remember that since, let's say, since 1850 when it, when it was introduced into North America, yes, it has been evolving. A lot of generations of house sparrows. Yeah, there's a lot of generations of house sparrows, and now we're 167, 168 years. This is the 168th year in North America. And these things and breed... That's a pretty high turnover generation to generation. Sure. And so we know... It's like 100 plus generations of house sparrows. And we know from oceanic islands like the Galapagos Islands how rapidly the beak 
morphology of, can, of a can finch can take place. evolve. Yeah. Right. And house sparrows are found in islands all around the world now. They're all, they're, they are, there is no gene flow between the Philadelphia house sparrows and the Portland, Oregon house sparrows and, or the Cairo, Egypt house sparrows. So next up, how did they get here? We've got a very fun topic. Matt and I were sort of trading crazy examples of this kind of stuff um, before Tony got here. You sort of have to change your entire mentality about the idea of native species, the idea of native biodiversity. Forget all of that um, as what your value set might be. Um, And put yourself in the mind of some guys, I think it's mostly guys, in the 1800s who just like... Who, who frankly think more like I think gardeners think like, you know, mm. like, oh, this is a cool plant. I want to put it in my garden, you know, and then even if it's from somewhere else, no big deal. Like, yeah. and so these guys were like, that's a cool bird. I want it in my city. Guys at the time would form groups called acclimatization societies. The goal of which was to, was to basically import European species that they thought would be cool to have here. And so you were talking about like Portland, Oregon, Portland, sure. Oregon being one of the wackiest ones of them. I would. So at the time, um, there was a the United States Department of Agriculture was uh, any wild species that was being imported into the United States uh, had to be inspected and assessed when it was coming through. And it was the United. It was the Department of Agriculture Bureau of Biological Surveys that was conducting this. Um, up until 1900, at least, and even beyond that. Uh, And there was a wonderful book. It was a technical bulletin published by the Department of Agriculture in 1928 by John C. Phillips as the author. And I have this in front of me, and it was called Wild Birds Introduced or Transplanted into North America. And he was uh, working for the Biological Survey, uh, and he had access to these data. And I think that it's worth just reading a couple paragraphs of this to give you the idea. Give us some of the wackier species that sure, are... Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, the Cincinnati Acclimatization Society spent about $9,000 between... Which is a heck of a lot of money back then. Between 1872 and 74, and they set free some 20 European species, more than 3,000 individuals in Cincinnati. <laughs> um at the same time, uh, songbirds were set free in Lafayette Park in St. Louis, and in the American Acclimatization Society under the leadership of Eugene Scheiflin, uh liberated a number of birds in Central Park, New York in 1877. Uh, by the 1880s, uh, there, the Portland, Oregon Songbird Club, which was a society for the introduction of useful songbirds, Founded by a German-American, C.F. Pfluger. Uh, this organization, it, <laughs> I mean, we're talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individuals of, of multiple species here. And that guy uh, thought he was so cool, and now he's going to be remembered forever as a dumbass. Well, Shefflin in particular. <laughs> a, ship, a shipment of 100 nightingales, supposed to be destined for a private estate in California, was reported in Liverpool, England in 1887. Henry Ford liberated 400 to 500 European songbirds on his estate in Dearborn, Michigan in 1913. Kind of pumping them out, man. Yeah, so the, what's incredible here is that there's so many species that are being introduced during this period, um, and most of these introductions failed. And the house sparrow was one that just happened to stick when it happened. 
uh, European Starling also stinks. Well, we're going to just drop that real quick because Shefflin is most infamous for being the guy who introduced bunches of pairs of starlings into Central Park from which our entire continent's starling population is is descended. Um, and so I saw him pop up in a book we're going to talk about by a Philadelphia um, guy named Gentry. Just happened to mention in passing, oh yeah, Shefflin introduced some of these in New York. So he was part of the New York, what was it called? I guess the New York located American Acclimatization Society. So I wanted to just set that backdrop as like, this is the mindset back then, that it ain't no big thing at all to like, if you've got some extra money to play with and you like birds, is to like, yo, next time you go to France, can you bring back, you know, like, or next time you're in England, or hey, write your friend in shipping and send him to send, tell him to send over some pairs of this. You and, know? and when I say that most of the introductions failed, that doesn't mean that they failed right away. Uh, the European Skylark was introduced to Portland, Oregon, the Portland Songbird Society. Is, the, yeah. the, the population of Skylarks uh, persisted for over 25 years. There's in, a population. In in, and they were breeding in Portland, Oregon, European style. There's still population to this day on Vancouver Island. I wonder if there's What's a related. Skylark? It's a songbird and it's kind of not a script, um, but it has a known for its like aerial display and song. That's his name. Cool. So it was introduced in Victoria, British Columbia in April 1913 by the Natural History Society of Victoria. There is everywhere you look. There is a club that is arising during just this like period. they're planting a different variety yeah. of daffodil or something. You know, um, I'm not sure how many of you guys are in people listening to this are in Philadelphia, but you can find it online at gridphilly.com. I've started writing again for Grid Magazine. The issue that's out right now just hit just hit. I was going to say newsstands, but it's not for sale. It's free, so it just hit cafes all over the place and bars and waiting rooms throughout Philadelphia has an article by me about house sparrows um, and about sort of their introduction to Philadelphia. So now, now that we have it in our heads that in the mid-1800s into the late-1800s, people were doing wacky things with wildlife. Also at about this time, in various cities around the United States where people were now getting more into planting street trees and beautifying their cities, various cities were contending with outbreaks of pests for the street trees and the local greenery. Starting in Portland, Maine in 1869, then Boston, New York, people were releasing house sparrows um, to try to control these, part maybe because they wanted to just release house sparrows, some of them because they wanted to try to control pests. Again, at that time, not such a crazy wackadoodle thing. And so Philadelphia didn't half-ass it like those other cities. There was a guy who lived in Matt's current neighborhood, Germantown, I guess I was going to call him, he's, he's an immigrant, he's American, um, but from England. Aren't we all? So there you go. So his name was John Bardsley, although today he was soon known as Sparrow Jack. And so what John Bardsley did is he went back home to, to his hometown in England. Um, it's a town called Aston, and I looked up, there's a few places called Aston, so I wasn't sure where exactly in England was. But he got the city of Philadelphia to to sort of authorize a payment to him, sort of help reimburse him for this. He didn't just capture 40 pairs. He didn't just capture 400. He captured one and returned with 1,000 English house sparrows to Philadelphia and let them, and then kept them until March, let them go. And then I'm going to quote from 
uh, a a Philadelphia writer um, of around then, um, Thomas George Gentry, in his book *The House Sparrow at Home and Abroad*, and so he's talking about having you know brought them back. Quote: In the latter part of April, the weather becoming mild, they were released from their long confinement to fly whither they chose, in the best of condition. The result of the attention and care bestowed upon them since their arrival and emancipated at a period when nature was buoyant with life and all aglow with beauty and song, there could be no obstacle to their easy acclimatization and consequent multiplication and diffusion, unquote. And multiply and diffuse, they did. Quick little add-on that there's a guy named, a children's book author, Mordecai Gerstein, who wrote a book called Sparrow Jack, a kid's picture book, which is kind of fun. You should check it out. Is this all related to Jack Sparrow? The problem is when you try to Google Sparrow Jack just That's by all itself, you all you get is Jack Sparrow. So you really have to do like Mordecai, Mordecai Gerstein, Sparrow Jack, and then you might actually find the book. So ironically, Thomas Gentry lives just down the street from Sparrow Jack. Both are residents in Germantown. And Gentry takes this realistic view of what's going on. You know, Thomas Gentry was, a, was an amateur ornithologist, you might say, for the yeah. time. But a lot of his nesting records of Philadelphia, he, he contributed a lot of early nesting uh, records that we have for the city, and he wrote a wonderful book on birds' uh, nests and eggs that contains a lot of Philadelphia records. Um, so Gentry allied himself to Elliot Cowes, who at the time was, uh, and still to this day, is probably one of the greatest ornithological historians of all time. Cows, he was just an impeccable writer and thinker and really had a mastery of the history of science within his time and as well as an ornithological prowess. And Cows, uh, the main proponent of the English sparrow, uh, when I say English sparrow, came from England, it's an interchangeable name, house sparrow and English sparrow. Yep. Back then, there were a lot of times they were calling these things English sparrows. Today, we call it the house sparrow. Um, but uh, the main proponent of the introduction was Thomas Mayo Brewer, who was uh, has fame in ornithological circles as the namesake of the Brewer's Blackbird. And Brewer was a was a great wasn't isn't it Thomas Brewer? But also, why are you giving me that a, look? a sparrow? Brewer sparrow, or Brewer sparrow? LBB yeah, LBB. There's many, yeah, there's many. Uh, Brewer made some pretty good... Matt has a song about, a song. Bre- about Brewer Sparrow. I'm just Sparrow. being modest about it. You <laughs> don't really want to sing the song right now. So Thomas Brewer uh, was a proponent of the introduction of, this, of the House Sparrow. And Elliot Cowes famously wrote an article in the American Naturalist, which is a very well-respected scientific journal to this day. Yeah. And Cowes just ripped into Brewer in the Naturalist. <laughs> And, and in, in like, one of the greatest wordplay battles of all time, it, some of the things that Cow says about, uh, about Brewer, you know, he calls him a pseudo-ornithologist and all this stuff, right? Um, <laughs> and he's just, just and like he, what the Alley Cat allies call Pete Mara. <laughs> Fake science! 
Tony, you're 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 right on because the the rationale that Brewer was bringing to the table to to justify the introduction of the house sparrows was in many ways kind of denying the ecological impacts of the of the introduction. Yeah. Similar similar things that were that are going on, and also his arguments, Brewer's arguments to against cows were that cows doesn't care about the lives of the sparrows and and the <laughs> the arguments quickly became ad hominem attacks against cows and saying Elliot cows uh, doesn't have any empathy and so Brewer could be part of what Tony refers to as the invasive species lobby yes <laughs> <laughs> and Thomas Gentry from Philadelphia admirably backed up cows on the on the he backed up, and the yep. book was not at least this book. I'm not sure what else he wrote on it that might have been had a different tone, but the house sparrow at home and abroad was pretty gentle about. It wasn't calling anybody names or calling anyone stupid. He was just sort of laying it out. It seemed like, and obviously with the perspective, sure. there was a Gentry published a short uh, rebuttal. We'll call it. I think also in the American Naturalist, and he specifically called out Brewer because Brewer. Uh, threw a few barbs at Gentry too. Ah, okay. In the article, so in his original article, so there was a, you know there was barbs being thrown by all parties. Got it. Uh, Gentry included, but Gentry and Cows kind of allied themselves. And when you go back, you know, we've got twenty twenty hindsight here. You go back and you read Cows' arguments, and you're like, oh yeah, he was right on. Yeah, Gentry so- was right on, and and Brewer was was the same. That mentality and arguments that Brewer is bringing to the table now, when we look back, seem quite foolish. And so, the, what, let's talk briefly for those who might not be so familiar with what's wrong with having built uh, millions and millions of house sparrows flying around our continent. First of all, they were not the solution for the inchworm problems of Philadelphia. They're mainly seed eaters as adults, they do feed their young with insects. Um, but then we have lots of other birds around that also feed on insects or feed their youngs with insects. It wasn't like that was a new thing that, that they would eat caterpillars. They uh, became an agricultural pest to some extent out in the countryside, although Gentry, to his credit, gets really into this back and forth about, well, are they in the countryside? They, they eat a lot of grain, so they're a pest in that sense. But when they're out there feeding their young, they're picking off a whole ton of bugs. And we'll and get so to that aspect of the benefits of house sparrows and a little bit later when we get into the plural sparrow wars mm-hmm. um, and then I think where I tend to hear the most vitriol against house sparrows is coming from the bluebird lobby but we'll say more generally people who put up bird boxes for cavity nesters like a bird that I've now adopted is something I want to see a lot of this year but like house wrens mm. um, bluebirds other things chickadees and you know it's spring the first time you hear house wrens sing oh, I love it and so these are birds that used to have, as, and this is a hard thing to judge because it was a different city then, but might have had more of a, maybe not urban in the sense of like center city kind of urban or old city kind of urban. Like what I say, what I mean is like landscapes with very little vegetation, just like brick and concrete. So maybe I don't know how much presence there, but certainly anywhere you had a garden, it sounds like. Um, and so I'm going to read something from a pre-house sparrow publication by one of Philadelphia's, I guess, early America's notable naturalists. This was uh, Dr. Benjamin Smith Barton, MD. Fragments of the Natural History of Pennsylvania. 1799. I was about to say 1799. Uh, And this is a a fun, fascinating book with uh, records of 
basically weather records, species occurrence records, when what birds show up in the spring, leave in the fall, vice versa. A lot of interesting stuff in here. It sort of breaks your heart when you read someone talking about Carolina parakeets and passenger pigeons. Like they're just part of the local fauna or occasional fauna, but still they're just like, why wouldn't you talk about them living around here? But he has this discussion of the house wren, which is kind of long. I might not read the whole thing, but it starts off saying, as a devourer of pernicious insects, one of the most useful birds with which I am acquainted is the house wren. And then this little bird seems particularly fond of the society of man. And it must be confessed that it is often protected by his interested care. From observing the usefulness of this bird in destroying insects, it has long been a custom in many parts of our country to fix a small box at the end of a long pole in the gardens, about houses, um, etc., as a place for it to build in. That's the end of the quote, end of what I'll read. But the idea that I took away from this was this is a guy living in Philadelphia in the, um, in the, in the, the end of the colonial era into the early republic. At a time when, to be fair, Philadelphia basically ended at 8th Street. Um, and you had Germantown, you had Concessing, other places that are now part of the city, but they were separated by a whole lot of farmland. So it was a different kind of place but still that, that bluebirds and house wrens were ubiquitous birds around your house and your garden. I know that they're not, like, it's not like they're going extinct or anything. We have plenty of, from what I can tell records of talking to you guys, plenty well, of bluebirds and house wrens. Well, plenty. You know, there's, what, no more than three bluebird nests in a given year in Philadelphia County. There aren't many bluebird records of breeding. Here, right. In, but, in Philadelphia County. Right, now. if I go to the Chester right. County, I'll see plenty of them. Sure. But, like, here in the city, where yeah. they used to be around, even and let's say maybe not in the most densely populated yeah. areas, but if the current Germantown... Well, to, well there's also been a, a tremendous uh, changeover in the landscape of Philadelphia County over yeah. the years. Uh, we lost a lot of our meadows and open spaces, and now meadows are, are one of the rarer habitats in Philadelphia. We actively preserve. Whereas 100 years yeah. ago, that wasn't the case. But back in the early days, nature is really seen as... Uh, to cultivate nature is is a, a pious activity, and also to we're m- more concerned with the economic value of species. Whether there are songbirds or the plants around us, what can we use in our local environment? And th- this was the rationale that was used for the introduction of the house sparrow was that we're going to introduce this, we call it biological control today, where we're going to introduce a non-native species into the environment to help us control a particular problem that we're having, a pest. You know, Elliot Cow has famously challenged Thomas Brewer and the proponents of the house sparrow introduction program to furnish me with 500 specimens with the stomachs dissected with a trained botanist and entomologist present to to go through the stomach contents of 500 house sparrows and show me that they're eating these these pest insects. Wait, when was this? This is a in the this is right after the introduction in the yeah. 1870s 1880s. What they find? They did, well, there was crickets after he suggested that they provide him with 500 specimens. Because if, if Thomas Brewer had really dissected 500 house sparrows, he would have found a bunch of seeds. Basically items, a bunch of A, whole lot a of bunch seeds. of plant material yeah. and no insects at all or very and few. And a bunch of seeds picked out of right. horse. So basically. the whole the rationale... A bunch of seeds picked out of horse manure. Exactly. The yeah. rationale for introducing these things was, was to use as a biological control to eat insect pests. When really these aren't insectivorous birds, and the native 
birds that are being out competed by the house like the chickadees like the house wrens like the bluebirds bluebirds they are all insectivorous they're hard working bug eaters those are the those are those so in fact you're reducing your the the native songbirds were already controlling the pest uh, if you had allowed them to flourish and instead you're instead you're bringing in this granivorous bird omnivorous but often eating a lot of plant material. We'll call them pretzel crumb control. Pretzel crumb eaters. (laughs) They're coming in and, you know, it's, it was just faulty logic right from the get go. Yeah. And it's, uh, and so I want to recommend, uh, an article that we started with in JSTOR daily, June 23rd, 2016 by Matthew Wills called the great sparrow war of the 1870s. Um, and there it cited a couple other older, Papers, uh, one by um, someone named Chandler Robbins from 1973 in Ornithological Monographs called The Introduction, Spread, and Present Abundance of the House Sparrow in North America, which is a lot of the great history here. And then an article from 1971 in the New England Quarterly called Elliot Cows and the Sparrow War by Michael Broadhead. And this is all a lot of fun reading if you want to get into the house sparrows and the, the sparrow war of the 1870s. We've actually covered most of what I wanted to cover for the house sparrow discussion. Tony brought in another house bar, another well, sparrow war. Though. Can I finish though with a quote from from cows? You should definitely finish the quote from cows, Tony. Because you know cows and Brewer were going back and forth. Bring the heat. And cows outlived Brewer, and he wrote a scathing account of the man. And he basically he what do you say something like even in death doesn't even absolve like how wrong he was, you know, even at death. And, and so he wrote, um, you know, so he kind of basically wrote his last thing being like, I was right. And the only person... You're dead, so you can't argue back. And the only person that could do this quote justice, reading it, would be Dan Carlin. I'm rolling my eyes because I don't like Dan Carlin's podcast, but Tony does, so hit it. So uh, I kind of like it. I mean, it's just there. You can like it, it's fine. I don't know how much I like it or not, but regardless, Dan Carlin, you know, he agreed to um, read this quote. I had proven my case to the satisfaction of the public, and the sparrow had proven his case, which was that he'd come to stay. I could whip all my featherless foes, but the sparrows proved too much for me. (laughs) And thus it ended with the house sparrow winning. So this has been a very North American, European-focused conversation. Um, Tree sparrows, which was a tree sparrow. Well, it's a very close relative of the house sparrow. And that's what they have in China, right? Oh, they have both. They have both? Okay. Yeah. So then in and China- the European tree sparrow was introduced into Lafayette Park in New York in 1888. Well, there's a population of <laughs> European tree sparrows to this day in St. Louis. And, you know, you, at the time, I remember looking at the range map and being like, why the hell are European tree sparrows in St. Louis? And, like, it is now perfectly obvious why they're in St. Louis, because a bunch of wackos... The, well, I will call them wackos. A bunch of wackos in the mid 1800s were like, "Let's throw some tree sparrows in too." Yeah, um, I know some uh, birders like Bert Filmeyer, I believe, and uh, from our club and some other folks. They they're like going to Oregon for a birding trip, and they like arranged to have a layover in St. Louis just so they could like for a couple hours drive around and tick that bird because you can count since this population is sustainable. Yeah, you can, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna read here for just a second from Phillips. He says that the European tree sparrow in St. Louis, the origin of the colony, was it was first reported in 1875, 
and it was nearly driven out of the of the uh, area by the stronger House Sparrow. Oh, also invasive alien species, which occupied Intra- all in- of the available intra genus competition of the exotics. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Right. And we should um, let people know too that there are sparrows in America. One being the American oh, tree sparrow. Yeah, but they're not um, relate. They're not closely related to these sparrows. It, it, it's just that the Europeans, when they came here, saw brown, gray-colored, small. Carnivorous birds and named them sparrows, but they're. I'm, I'm a huge. I mean, Matt is too. I mean, he wrote a song about Brewer Sparrow. I'm a huge. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of American sparrows. Aren't they like related to the buntings of Europe? Yeah. But our buntings are cardinals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the common names get all mixed up once you cross the Atlantic. Yeah. From so, either direction, either perspective. But back to China. Yeah. So there was another or a series of sparrow wars in China. Uh, as part of Chairman Mao's um, great leap forward, he considered the sparrows to be a agricultural pest and wanted them exterminated. And apparently, like he had his troops like chase these sparrows at a point where they would die from exhaustion, and they really reduced their numbers significantly. Like you just don't let them land, and you keep chasing them. Yeah, then they'll die. And there was, um, or you can catch them at that point and whack them. And there was four. It, they went after four types. Of- the four pests campaign, which also included rats, flies, and mosquitoes. The thought is that the sparrows were, even though they did eat some grain, were a far better controller of the insect population than they realized. And exterminating the house, the sparrows in China may have contributed to a famine that killed anywhere from 30 to... 70 million people. I'd say there's there's other things that contributed to the yeah. famines, but it's scary to think of that as yet another layer of it. This is part of Mal's Greatly Forward. There happens to be that right. fantastic Billy Bragg song called Waiting for the Greatly Forward. Yes, sir. Perhaps somebody took the time to, to write lyrics to the tune of the Greatly Forward about sparrows and commission their really good friend Mike McKee. Um, <laughs> would, would someone we know do that kind of thing, Tony? Someone, someone might have. Someone did, I believe. <laughs> and you may hear um, Mike McKee's version of Tony's lyrical take. It may have seemed obvious to kill this passerine But the Red Army is chasing the smell of burning gasoline Chairman Mao placated by a biologist lion Concealing his best science while the sparrows are all flying He ought to save his neck But he thinks that he should warn him Of the famine that's just around the corner The the one thing I want to mention Is that we have another um, another episode coming That we're going to be talking with um, Philadelphia's Autobahn guy Keith Russell who is a major birder and environmental educator, leads lots of bird walks. Community organizer. A whole bunch All of around stuff. awesome dude. Yeah, definitely. 
and we're going to talk to him because he has studied the window strike collision problem in Philadelphia specifically. But spring migration is coming. When do you guys? When do songbirds start really showing up? And everybody... songbirds are already showing up. Yeah. Eastern Phoebe just this last week in Philadelphia. Songbirds are on their way. Uh, but the clearly peak, not the, the main peak is the main the... push. Isn't isn't until late April or early yeah May. you know insectivores make the bulk of them and they need to get here when insects are active so then April but there's songbird collisions happening today right now even in March we've got songbird collisions happening uh, and the winter birds that are here in in Philadelphia region uh, white throated sparrows and dark eyed juncos uh, they're hitting windows too even during the winter mm-hmm. and. It's a, it's a major source of mortality for birds. And if you happen to come across a dead bird on the sidewalk uh, or in front of your sliding glass door, um, the best thing to do is to pick that bird up and put it into a Ziploc bag and put the date and location in, on a slip of paper and put it in the bag and donate it to the Academy of Natural Sciences if you're in Philadelphia. If you're in Philadelphia, or well, if you're in Pennsylvania or in New Jersey, we have salvage permits for both states, yep. and we take we take uh, salvaged birds, and we prepare them as specimens for the museum, and that way we get t- uh, tissue samples of muscle and blood and liver and whatever ectoparasites. How many birds would you put in one bag, Matt? You would always put one bird in each bag. And the reason why we do that is that there are lice and ticks and other gross things that live on the birds. Yep. And they fall off. But are important to study. Yeah, they're very important to study. And we like to know which species of lice are riding on which species of birds. So you don't want to mix up the lice. Definitely. Right. So put one bird in each Ziploc bag with the date, location, and put your name there too. And when it is prepared uh, for a specimen for the museum... Uh, and it'll be in a drawer in the same collection where we have John James Audubon's birds that are there with his name on the tag. And your name will be on the tag, uh, and you'll be able to contribute to science and allow this uh, otherwise great, uh, you know, it's, a, it's able to, we can take a bad situation and do the best with it to get the data from the And this yeah. obviously is true probably in a lot of places you might be listening to this too. If you're not in Philadelphia... Get in touch with your local natural history museum, local universities, um, and ask how you might be able to donate specimens that you find. If you're in Delaware, it's the Delaware uh, Delaware Museum of Natural History just outside of Wilmington. If you're in New York, it's going to be the American Museum of Natural History. Right. Uh, And and if you're in Maryland, it's going to be the Smithsonian. There's there are places to donate these birds rather than having them rot and go into the trash. And I have you know I use birds for another. function uh, I also have a sales permit and what I'm trying to do is get a collection of birds and I'm going to be taught to, to preserve to preserve the birds by Matt and his colleagues um, so that I could have a teaching collection at the at my environmental center nice uh, specifically for uh, visually impaired people so they can you know handle touch them yeah. yeah that's cool on so many levels um, so another way to collect data for this that is not at all in conflict with collecting them in bags and donating them um, is that on iNaturalist there is a project called and I quote bird window collisions bird windows hyphenated um, and this is run out of by some researchers out of Duke um, we'll actually hear from some of them on the bird window collision topic in that episode that's coming up but basically 
If you're an iNaturalist, which is a really easy put thing to, to slap on your phone as an app and be able to just take a picture of something out in the field, what you can do when you find one of these, these unfortunate deceased birds um, outside an office building or outside your nature center or wherever you are, um, you can take a picture of it right there, upload the record, um, and thereby help build a database specifically about locations of bird window collisions and mortality. Um, and this is just good general information. Um, it also can help if there's a particularly bad, um, we call it a hot spot. I don't know, but like hotspot sounds good sometimes, but a particular a spot where you're finding a whole lot of dead birds, those records can help figure out even like which side of the building are they hitting the most, offer opportunities for mitigating the window strike problem. Um, so there's important data that you can collect and you should collect when you find dead birds um, wherever you happen to be. Now on iNaturalist, I was just farting around and looking for, trying to track down this project again for talk about it. It turns out there's a Philly bird strikes project also in iNaturalist. So maybe you can submit it to both, no reason you can't. Ow, citizen science. So one thing to just keep in mind is that we, in uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, we ran into a really bad problem with DDT and the, the thinning of eggshells. And the only reason that, that scientists were able to pinpoint the, the, that that chemical was causing such a problem was because we had historical collections of eggs. And we were able to go and measure the historical collections and measure the eggs today uh, and realize that the eggs were thinning. Collections and matter. So collections really matter. Yeah. And today we are not collecting specimens in the same with the same breadth geographic breadth uh, and year to year as we used to 100 years ago. Yeah. And, I, and it concerns me that 50 years from now, there may be an unforeseen catastrophe and that might be a new toxin that's in, introduced to the sure. environment or something. And the, and the people 50 years from now aren't going to be even able to diagnose the problem because there's no modern collections from our time period for them to compare to. And it's something that I think today... For good reasons, our sensibilities might be a little offended at the idea of actively going out and killing lots of animals for collections, even though I think you can justify it um, in, in the right kind of circumstances. But this is a case where you don't have to be an active, you're not actively killing anything, you're killing anything. You're out there take, making the most of a crappy situation mm -hmm. um, and, and keeping those birds from going entirely to waste. Um, I'll make a slight footnote on this and say that um, you can also do this kind of thing for, for, for roadkill. <laughs> I know that there, um, a lot of folks don't mind getting reptiles that you find if they're not, again, too road jerky, um, that you find on the road for similar purposes that you can help build collections and build information. Um, even when they have unfortunately been killed by a car. Um, yeah, roads are to reptiles and amphibians what windows are to birds <laughs> or cats um oh cats lord thank you for listening to this episode of the urban wildlife podcast on the sparrow wars uh as well as um just sort of a, a peek into how people thought about wildlife differently and nature differently in some of the cities where you might live in north america uh, you know, 150 years ago or so. 
Also looking at sort of the first part of a discussion about birds getting killed when they hit windows in cities. Um, we're going to go way deeper on this in the upcoming episode. Yeah, thank you very much to Matt Haley for coming out. Sure, on great. a day night, all the way from Germantown to West Philly. It was a long haul. <laughs> in my horse-drawn carriage. In your horse-drawn carriage. Well, how our servants prepare you your bed <laughs> and draw you a bath. <laughs> Please rate us highly on your Th- podcast listening app of choice. Thanks to Dan Carlin. Thanks to Dan Carlin for his cameo. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, don't be a stranger. Tweet at us at UrbanWildlifeCast. Send us an email at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Tell us what you want us to talk about next time. You need all the grain. Now you're one. That's just the regime. Tweeting for the great tweet forward. If you're a bird singing dude, I will all sparrows get me some room. Waiting for the great tweet forward. Waiting.